In the early 19th century, a Church of Scotland minister called Robert Murray McShane was told by a friend of a believer who was struggling enormously in his faith. This believer was haunted, basically, by, by a deep awareness of his sin and by his great weakness in living for Jesus. And gradually this man had, had sort of sank into real despair um, and just felt he couldn't even call himself a Christian anymore. He felt cut off from God completely. And on hearing of that man's struggle, McShane was moved to write to him, even though he'd never actually met him. And at the heart of McShane's letter, um, he gave this discouraged believer the following advice. He said, for one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. See, I want to suggest this morning that with that advice in a letter to a struggling believer, McShane actually was echoing the advice that stands at the heart of this letter to the Hebrews. McShane was writing to one believer, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a whole community of struggling believers. But the advice actually is very similar. For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. See, why is that good advice for a struggling believer to hear? Why is that good advice for every Christian to hear? Because it certainly goes against the grain of our modern sensibilities. Our world assumes that the one thing we can be certain of, the one thing we should be concerned about, is ourselves and knowing ourselves. So newspapers, television, magazines, books, films, songs, all sort of fuel that modern day self-obsession, the belief that goes largely unchallenged that what really matters in life is you, is me, is, is knowing yourself. Am I happy? Do I feel fulfilled right now? Do others see me the way I deserve to be seen? The light, in the light of who I really am. We live in a self-obsessed world where the assumption is know yourself. That's the key. And we need to be clear that that there's some truth in that. Um, In the 17th century, a great Christian thinker, John Calvin, argued that true and solid wisdom consisted of two things. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And again, Scripture testifies that it's important to know who we are in reality. But I suspect we are often a lot better at the second part of Calvin's phrase than the first. We're better at knowing ourselves, or at least pretending to know ourselves, than trying to know the God who made us. We're better at looking at ourselves than we are looking at Christ. And now what isn't just a problem for 21st century Christians, because the writer of the Hebrews identifies that tendency in his first century readers here. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that this letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of discouraged, disillusioned Christians in the face of the hostility of the world, the ridicule of the world, and in in the light of their growing awareness of their own weakness. The Christians this letter is written to appear ready to give up on following Jesus, to go back to the life they had before which for many of that group would mean going back to Judaism, going back to the law of Moses. 
And I hope we've seen over the last few weeks that the writer of this letter, he knows his readers. And he is aware, painfully aware, of the struggles facing them. And actually, he loves the believers he's writing to deeply. And what he wants them to see is that a lot of their struggles are coming from the failure to look beyond themselves, to look beyond their own hearts, their own struggles, and to lift their eyes to Jesus Christ, the one who called them to follow him in the first place. See, the Hebrew Christians were looking too much at themselves and not enough at Jesus. And you see, the big problem with looking too much at yourself is ultimately you will never be satisfied with what you see. The world around us tells us that if we could just understand ourselves better, what we'd see is our hidden potential, our hidden reserves of strength, our, our inherent goodness. If you could just understand yourself, you'd know you're worth it. The assumption is you get to know yourself, you're going to like what you see. But the problem with that is the experience of the Hebrew Christians was very different. And I want to argue from Scripture it's one that is far truer to life. Because the more they've experienced of life in this world, the more they've seen of the reality of life rather than the ideal, the more they've seen of their own hearts. What they've been struck by is not their goodness, their strength. What they've been struck by is actually their faithlessness and their weakness. What they've been struck by is their sinfulness, that that mysterious tendency in all of us to be our own worst enemy. That tendency that just seems to, to sabotage and spoil every attempt we make to truly be loving, to be kind, to be selfless. That's what the Hebrew Christians are seeing. And they're seeing their weakness alongside that. The realization that they are not the steadfast people they like to think they are in their strongest moments. Instead, they are prone to wander. And they are weak and stumbling so often. See, they've looked at themselves. And what they've seen is sin and weakness. And as a result... They're very close to losing heart. But you see, the remedy for that, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is instead of looking solely at ourselves, at our weaknesses, at our sin, we need to look at Jesus. Because Hebrews tells us, God sent Jesus to overcome our sin and to overcome our weakness. Those two things that seem just to to haunt us and spoil things. He tells them, look at Christ. Look at him ten times as often as you look at yourself. That's not so they can hide from themselves. In a profound way, the writer of Hebrews agrees with these Christians. Yes, you are weak. You are sinful. But he tells them, don't despair about that. Because God hasn't despaired of it. And he has sent his son to overcome your sin and your weakness. So hold fast to him. And take hold of the riches he has won for you in your place. See, that's the message of this central part of Hebrews we've come to this morning. So let's look at it together now. Now, you'll notice Daniel gave us a very short reading 
and verses 19 to 25. I have to sort of confess, in reality, this, the passage for this morning is really Hebrews chapter 7 to 10. So you've got four chapters to get through. But we finished by about 5 p.m., so that should be all right. Um, but no, no, not really. But the eagle-eyed among you will realize that we've actually jumped quite a few chapters. Last week we were in chapter 4. This week we're in chapter 10. But to get some idea of what the writer is saying in verses 19 to 25, we need to get a sense of what he's built upon in those intervening chapters. Because in chapters 7 to 10, the writer is applying great truths um, about Jesus as our priest and as the sacrifice for our sins. So we'll just be looking back as we go into those chapters. But first of all, in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 10, I want us to see the writer is, is urging his readers here, and including us, to recognize that in his death on the cross, Jesus has overcome the sin of everyone who puts their trust in him. And as a result, the writer says, we can approach God with confidence, knowing that he has accepted us. I'll just read verses 19 to 24. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. See, through Jesus' blood, we have been washed clean from our sin if we trust in him. That's what the writer is telling these believers here. And in these verses, he's going back to the argument he built on in chapters 9 and 10. Because in that section of the letter, he reminds his readers that Jesus is the sacrifice for their sins. And that as the perfect Son of God, his sacrifice, his blood, has the power to wash us clean. So we just turn for a moment to Hebrews 9. I put it up on the screen. 9 verses 13 to 14. Because in the middle of this section, he's looking back to something his readers would have known very well. The Old Testament sacrificial system. And in that system, the only way the Israelites could approach God was if they had first offered up sacrifices in the shape of goats and calves. See, in offering up an animal sacrifice, an Israelite was acknowledging that he was a sinner, that God was holy, and that his sin, the Israelite's sin, was punishable by death. However, the God of Israel, in his grace, at Mount Sinai, had told the Israelites that if they sacrificed an animal in place of themselves, he would accept them. He wouldn't treat them as their sins deserved. And what the writer of Hebrews wants his readers to see is just how far Jesus' death, his willing sacrifice, goes beyond what the Old Testament system could achieve. Let me just read those verses for us that are on the screen there. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? See what he's saying here. He's saying the blood of animals, that made you outwardly clean in the temple, but it could do nothing about your consciences, nothing about the state of your hearts. But when Jesus offered himself as the unblemished, sinless sacrifice for our sin on the cross, 
what he was able to do was to cleanse our consciences, to wash us clean so we can serve the living God. Now when it comes to phrases like the blood of Jesus, often in our modern society we can get a little squeamish about that. Many of our modern songs actually avoid that phrase, the blood of Jesus, maybe for that reason. And the Old Testament temple it certainly was not a place for the faint-hearted. You went there any day and you would have witnessed the deaths of, of countless animals. Blood spattered everywhere, enough to make a butcher blush. There, there was blood everywhere. But you see, what that blood told the Israelites was that their sin was serious. That sin was actually a big deal in God's eyes. Sin mattered to God. He couldn't just turn a blind eye to it. These animals being killed in front of them showed them that. The fact that animals' blood had to be shed demonstrated the severity of sin. And in some ways you could argue that we should be more squeamish about our sin than we are about the blood of animals in passages like this. An Old Testament Israelite couldn't dodge the fact that forgiveness of sin is not cheap. It is costly. God is a holy God of perfect justice. And the penalty for our sin is death. But you see, it was more than just a reminder of their sin, these animal sacrifices. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 with me because the writer tells us that these animal sacrifices were always pointing ahead of themselves to the ultimate sacrifice to God's solution for our sin Hebrews 10 verse 1 the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves and then verse 4 makes it clear it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin That sacrifice system wasn't enough. It couldn't deal with sin. Only Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, could cleanse us from our sin. And back to verses 19 to 20 of chapter 10, that is just what he has done. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the writer tells his readers. He tells us, Jesus' blood has washed you clean if you trust in him. And because you're clean in God's eyes, you can now approach him with confidence as a child would to her father. See, our sin is no longer a barrier, the writer tells us here. Jesus' blood has dealt with it. And his readers need to see that. We need to see that this morning. So we said last week that sin, Hebrews tells us, is deceitful. It lies to us. That's why we need to help one another see through the lies of sin. And sin's first um, attack to us is to say that we will be happy if we ignore God. We'd be happy if we go against him. But if sin can't make us believe that, then it will be content, perfectly content to tell us that it has actually formed an insurmountable barrier between us and God. Okay, sin tells us, 
Maybe you don't want to sin anymore. Maybe, okay, that's fine. But, but what about the times you did? And what about the times you still do? Actually, you can't get rid of me. I'm always going to be here. And that is why God will never accept someone like you. See, sin is deceitful, the writer says. And if we begin to believe sin's lies, that there's no way we can be clean from it, we will begin to fear God. Or we'll begin to resent God for his holiness. We certainly will have no confidence in approaching him. See, that is why we need to see the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus here. Again, it's, it's terms we don't normally use, but, but they're here. And we need to grasp what they're saying. See, as Christians, we are not kidding ourselves that God just loves us and turns a blind eye to our sin. See, just as the Old Testament sacrificial system reminded the Israelites of their sin, we have an even more powerful reminder that we are indeed sinful. And that's the cross of Jesus. It's not that our sin doesn't matter, because if it didn't matter, Jesus would not have gone to that cross. But, because of the cross, sin will not have that final word. Sin has been overcome. And when sin lies to us and says, it will always be with us, the writer says, look at Jesus and what his blood has done for you. The cross gives us the only assurance we can ever have that we are accepted by God, that we can have confidence with him. Because Jesus shed his blood on that tree, because he cried, it is finished, and then died. We can know that we are made clean if we hold fast to him. See, the Hebrew Christians have begun to believe that they could never be clean. Just as the Old Testament system could never wash them clean. But the writer tells them they have reckoned without the blood of Jesus. They've reckoned without what Jesus has done for them. They need to celebrate that forgiveness and that cleansing. They need to look at Jesus and what he's done. But the other great obstacle to their confidence in the Christian life was their ongoing weakness. And we see that throughout this letter. We get glimpses of this group of Christians who are stumbling along at best. They think, okay, well maybe God could forgive me for my past sins, forgive us for the things we've done in the past, but what about the present? Why is it I'm still struggling? Why is it I still feel so weak today? Chapter 12, verse 12 of Hebrews refers to that their feeble arms and their weak knees. These Christians do not feel strong. They don't feel like glowing adverts for victory in the Christian life. They're limping along. And they're unsure whether... They can keep going. But you see, again, in this central part of chapter 10, we see that the writer of this letter is not ready to throw in the towel on their behalf just yet. Why? Because again, he says, they've lost sight of Jesus, their great high priest, and he is able to sustain them in their weakness. Let me just read verse 21 aloud for us. 
we have a great priest over the house of God, the writer tells us. That can be translated the household of God. See, in that phrase, the writer reminds us that if we trusted in Jesus, we're now part of God's household, God's family. And as his children, God has not left us alone to fight against sin. He has not left us alone in our weakness. Instead, he has given us a great high priest, Jesus, to help us and sustain us in our weakness as we live for him. And in that, the writer is going back to the argument he made in chapter 7 and 8 of this letter. See, in those chapters, the writer introduces us to the obscure Old Testament character of Melchizedek. And we are part of a church here where quite a number of our small boys have inherited Old Testament names. I have a son called Noah, there's a Moses, there's a Joshua, there's a Jacob. Melchizedek is yet to make an appearance. Um, but you know, if you're thinking of trying for a family, bear it in mind. Um, but Melchizedek, it is just a name that fills us with fear. What's going on here in chapter 7? And they're daunting chapters to understand. But I think a useful summary of them can be found um, in chapter 7, verses 24 to 25. Let me read that aloud for us. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. See, in these verses, the writer reminds us that the same Jesus who died on the cross now lives forever. He didn't stay dead. It's not just Jesus on the cross he's pointing us to. This Jesus, he says, has a permanent priesthood, like Melchizedek had. If you look at the book of Genesis, Melchizedek appears out of nowhere. Um, Chapter 7, verse 3, he is without beginning of days or end of life. So, the writer says, as Melchizedek sort of lives forever, so does Jesus. And because Jesus lives forever, his mercy and grace towards us also lasts forever. It didn't end at the cross. It actually is present with us today to sustain us as we live for him. He is able to save completely, he says, or that can be translated forever or to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So again, if you're a Christian this morning, we need to see this. The same Jesus who died on a cross 2,000 years ago is alive today and is bringing to bear the power of heaven to keep you from falling. He is bringing to bear all his resources of mercy and grace and power to sustain you in your weakness. And he will not stop sustaining you. He is able to save you completely because he's alive and interceding for you right now. What Jesus has begun, he will finish if you humble yourselves and hold fast to him. So actually, it's one of the, the great paradoxes of the Christian life that it's when we are aware of our weakness that actually we're in a healthy position. When we're aware that in and of ourselves we can't keep going, we can't do great things for God, we can't say no to sin and to selfishness and to pride. 
If we know we're weak, the Bible tells us, then you're almost halfway there. It's when you think you're strong. It's when you think you can do it on your own. When you think God is lucky to have you. That's when you're in terrible danger. So the writer to the Hebrews tells these believers, don't look at yourself. Don't be overwhelmed by your weakness. Because you've got a great high priest who will sustain you. Don't despair on your weakness. Take it to him and ask him to strengthen you. And he is able to save us completely if we go to him. See, the writer to Hebrews is is, is confident throughout this letter that his believers have developed a picture of Jesus that is just too small. A Jesus who can't overcome their sin or a Jesus who can't keep them going for him in the present. And all too often that's our problem, isn't it? Our Jesus often is just a bit too small for the problems that we face. And so Hebrews tries to open our eyes, to lift our eyes to who he is and what he has done for us. See, we're, we're, like, we're like people living on top of a gold mine. We just never dig into it to tap into those riches. We, we believe we are poor. When in Jesus we are so, so spiritually rich, the writer tells us. In and of yourselves, yes, you are poor and weak. But why don't you go to him? To your great high priest? To the sacrifice for your sins? Don't look at yourself. Look at him. And he will sustain you, the writer tells us. So Jesus, he has, he has overcome our sin through his blood. He sustains us in the present, in our weakness, through his strength. And he has also given us another great gift that the writer unpacks in Hebrews 10, verses 22 to 25. That gift is he's given us one another. See, through his people, Jesus spurs us on. Again, look at those verses 22 to 25 for a minute and just look at the repeated phrase in those verses let us let us let us see if we're going to tap into the riches that Jesus has won for us we need one another to do that see we so easily forget that the vast majority of the letters in the New Testament they're not written to individuals they're written to communities of believers who who are told to take the truths of the gospel and help one another apply them to our lives. So if you're a Christian here this morning, it's not all about you. And as you look around on a, on a Sunday morning or in a home group or just when you're meeting up with a Christian friend, acknowledge that you need that person. You need those people if you're going to live for Jesus. Again, we're back to where we began. If our only concern is looking at ourselves, at our own spiritual health, at the state of our own hearts, then you will quickly find yourself trapped in sort of arid introspection. There's just no life there. Just living within yourself, going, 
I failed again, or why don't other people value me, or how could God love me really? See, instead, we need one another. We're actually part of a global church, which has local bodies all over the world. And ultimately that humbles us, that it's not all about us. We're only one small part of what God is doing in this world. Don't get me wrong, we're a precious part. Jesus died to make us a part of that. But we are still just one part of what Jesus is doing throughout the cosmos. So we need one another to explore what he's doing and to tap into those riches he's won for us. And the writers of Hebrews just point, point lends a few ways in which we can help each other in that. Through his people, Jesus spurs us on to delight in God. Verse 22 there. He says, let us draw near to God. He says, corporately, together, as children approach their father. So let's encourage one another to go to him and grow in our knowledge and love of him. And there's a phrase C.S. Lewis uses at the end of his Narnia books. He talks about going further up and further in. It's like the rich is still to be explored. And, and that's sort of what the writer is saying here. Go further up and further in in your knowledge of God. If you haven't exhausted him yet, you never will. Get to know him better. Grow. Deepen in your love and praise of him. Let us draw near to God the writer tells us. Let's also delight in the future, verse 23, in the hope we profess of a glorious new creation. We thought about that last week. I won't say much more about that except to say, look again in verse 23 at the the very simple basis of confidence Hebrews gives us, that that future is secure. Verse 23, let's hold on swervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It's as simple as that. God is faithful. He has promised to bring you into that glorious future and he will do it. Saying it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And he is faithful. So we can delight in the future. And then finally, we can delight in loving service. That's verses 24 and 25. Let me read verse 24 for us. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Love, that is the motivation for all that God has done for us in Christ. The only way we can understand what God has done for us is if we begin loving one another. We need to love as he has first loved us. To forgive as he has forgiven us. To be patient as he is patient with us. Spur one another on to love. And good deeds, basically just the tangible evidence of love. Giving our time and gifts to one another in service. Whether that's cooking a meal for someone who needs it. Whether that's setting out chairs on a Sunday morning so we can gather together like this. Whether that's praying for one another. Listening to one another. Laughing with each other. Crying with each other. We need to spur one another on to love and good deeds and we do that by giving of ourselves in love. Because in that we're just mirroring 
God's self-giving love in Christ. To truly understand and experience the love God has for you, you have to commit yourself to loving others, those around you. We need one another. The writer of Hebrews tells us, verse 25, so don't give up meeting together. Whether on a Sunday or during the week, we just cannot live for Jesus on our own. And it is pride to say that we can. There may be times in our lives when we have to live a bit more isolated from other Christians, perhaps for for geography or just situation in life. But the norm is that we need one another and even in those times, we need to take advantage of, of, of phone calls, of emails, just that we need the encouragement of others. Don't give up meeting together. You won't make it on your own, the writer tells them. Jesus has given you his people for a reason, to spur you on. You need one another, he says. In some ways, these verses in chapter 10, they sort of form the very heart of this letter to the Hebrews. And we shouldn't be surprised, we've seen it already, the focus of the writer is to open our eyes to Jesus. The one who has cleansed us from our sin. The one who sustains us in our weakness. The one who gives us one another to help us live for him. And so the overall message of this passage is very simple, but it is one we need to grasp. Don't let an awareness of your sin keep you from Jesus. He's cleansed you from it. Don't let an awareness of your weakness or your failures keep you from Jesus because he has the strength to overcome them. And don't let anything, whether it be discouragement or shame or pride or preoccupation, keep you from meeting with his people. For they are there to spur you on. You are there to spur them on. And together, we can tap into the riches that Christ has won for us. I just want to finish with another excerpt from the letter I've opened with by that Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, to a struggling believer. Words I believe the writer of Hebrews would echo that remind us of the Jesus who is presented here. McShane writes to this believer, If you only knew the heart of Christ as it is, you would lay your weary head with John on his bosom. Do not take up your time so much with studying your own heart as with studying Christ's heart. For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ.